This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about Chris Evangelista's top 10 movies of 2023. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode, as you might have assumed, by Slash Film editor and chief film critic Chris Evangelista. Hi. Chris, welcome back to the show. How was your holiday season? It was good. How was yours, Ben? It was very nice. Thank you. Um, okay, so so I guess like this was maybe in the last weeks of December, we published a group ranking of the 15 best movies of 2023. But uh, I did Ryan's top 10 on the show yesterday. I want to do yours today and, and maybe a few more over the next few days. But um, I just wanted to give people a little bit of space because in previous years on Slash Film, we published individual top 10 lists, but we're not doing that this year. We just have too much going on. So I thought it would be cool to, to come on the podcast and sort of like clear out and just let people talk about their favorite movies of 2023. Because um, I guess to tee this up a little bit, Chris, did you think 2023 was a good film year? Yeah, I think it was a pretty good year overall. Uh, I feel like every year, as long as I've been doing this job, people have been like, it was a bad year for movies. And I've like never <laughs> agreed with that. Like, I just think it's been a good year overall. I, I, I saw a lot of stuff I really liked. Um, it was a little bit of a weird year for me, uh, but uh, I won't go into like personal details, but I didn't like see as much as I would like to have seen uh, in a timely fashion. I, did, I had to do a lot of catching up at the end of the year, but I, mm-hmm. I think it was a pretty good year. Awesome. Um, I'm very curious what your list is because we have not talked about these entries beforehand. So uh, let's kick things off with your number 10. What is your number 10 movie of 2023? Uh, Number 10 would be All of Us Strangers, uh, which stars Andrew Scott, uh, aka the hot priest from Fleabag. Uh, He plays a writer and he starts visiting his parents. Uh, But the twist is his parents are dead. Uh, They die when he was a kid in a car accident, but he's he goes back to his childhood home and sees them as they were right before they died. So uh, in, a, in a sense, he's older than they are now. And his parents are played by Jamie Bell and Claire Foy. And uh, the first half of the movie is sort of him visiting them. And you're sort of not sure if like he's seeing their ghosts or if this is in his head or what. And in the midst of all this, he also begins a relationship with a, a guy who lives in his building played by Paul Mescal. And uh, eventually he's like, I want you to come home and meet my parents. And uh, I won't say any more uh, than that, you know, because I want people who haven't seen the movie to experience it uh, sort of untarnished, you know, unspoiled. But uh, this is like a a really haunting 
fascinating, uh, poetic little movie. And it, it really, like, I, I wish I had seen it sooner, but I, I'm glad I got around to seeing it eventually because, uh, it just, it really impressed me just the, the acting is, is phenomenal. And it's just a, it's a ghost story kind of, but it's not your typical sort of ghost story. So I was, I was really impressed with this. Did you, um, I, I've, I liked this movie a lot as well. I think it probably is among my favorites of the year. I, I've not finalized my list yet. I'm waiting until the very end and I'll reveal my list. But um, this, this director, I don't think I was familiar with any of his other work. I don't think I'd seen any of his other stuff. Um, he directed, his name is Andrew Haig. And he directed like um, Lean on Pete, which I, I didn't see. And then, 45 years, which came out back in 2015. Um, did you, did you like know who this guy was going into this movie? I've heard of him, but this is actually the first film of his I've seen, believe it or not. So I, I know of him, like I've heard of those movies, but I haven't seen them. So, okay. Uh, yeah, I was, I was very impressed, uh, with what he was able to do here. And like, it's, it's the type of movie that like definitely put this guy on my radar and I'm like, Oh man, I, I hope he makes another movie very soon. And I'm very curious to see what it is. So I'm glad you, you dug this one too. Yeah. Uh, okay. What is your number nine movie, Chris? Number nine is a movie I feel like a lot of people slept on or haven't even heard of it. It's called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and uh, this is uh, it's a, it's about a group of uh, environmental activists who are, uh, as you can guess by the title, planning to blow up an oil pipeline. And it's it's incredibly tense. It's almost like a thriller and like a heist movie sort of. And uh, the editing in this is is so cool the way it's edited because it, ke- it keeps cutting back in time, back and forth in time between like them going to blow the pipeline and them sort of like assembling the crew to blow the pipeline. And you get to know all the characters who are all like very different people who you wouldn't sort of like expect to, to hang out together, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it shows like how they came together and how, you know, why they're planning to do this. And it, 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 this was uh, I just thought this was a really cool movie that. Uh, I feel like I wish more people had seen um, and I hope they get around to seeing it eventually. Tell me a little bit more about why you liked the editing in this movie. Cause that, that was the one thing that I, it kind of, it stood, it stood out to me as I was watching it. Um, and I, I can't quite wrap my head around what I fully think about the way that it, it sort of cuts around in, in time. But what, what about that resonated with you? It just, it heightens the tension. Like there's this, without giving away too many spoilers, there's this one cut where, <laughs> Uh, some man, I don't know how to describe this cut without giving away, but, <laughs> but there's this one, it's like midway through the film and the characters are in the midst of doing something and something goes wrong. And there's this quick cut in the middle of what they're doing. And it like, it knocked the wind out of me. It was like, holy shit, that's a good mm. cut. And yeah. I remember this so, moment. Yes. Yeah. So just like the things like that, just really just heighten the tension and show like how, how you can craft a movie like this and make it so intense without like make you know, this isn't like an action packed film, but the cuts like that uh, make it feel like the, like very uh, intense. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay, cool. So that was number nine. What's your number eight? Number eight is poor things, which I feel like a lot of people have seen or talked about. Uh, I feel like a lot of people had this higher up on their list. This is number eight for me. Uh, your ghost Lanthimos is his latest film. I've talked about him before. I think I've talked about this where I talked about specifically how I really did not like his earlier films. I did not, uh, like I did not really love the lobster. I did not really love, uh, killing of a sacred deer because they're really mean movies for lack of a better. They're really mean spirited movies. And it wasn't until the favorite 
that I sort of came around on him. And the, because the favorite, while it has its mean streak, it's not as mean. And this is like, Poor Things is like the most optimistic movie I think he's made to date. And I've sort of turned the corner on him now that he's making less nasty movies. And, mm-hmm. uh, and this is like a, you know, a sort of a twist on Frankenstein where Emma Stone is um, a, a woman who's, who's uh, pretty much resurrected from the dead by Willem Dafoe's character. Who's a, a sci- I'm like a mad scientist. And she goes off on this, this quest through, you know, this journey of self-discovery and she grows into a character and uh emma stone is is so good in this uh this is probably like her best performance and the movie just has is is set in this like surreal heightened uh fantasy world for lack of a better term and it's um it's yeah i this this really uh impressed me do you have a favorite scene or a favorite moment even from this movie that jumps out? Like when I think about this movie, I think about the, the moment uh, when they're on the boat, like the sort of, um, I don't know what it is, like at the steamship kind of thing going through this like really surreal looking ocean liner adventure or whatever. And uh, they're having this conversation on the on the deck. Um, just something about the the framing and the conversation that was had. That's the like the moment of the movie for me. But there are a lot of like really big moments here. I'm I'm curious if like what's the first thing that comes to mind? You know, when you think about this movie. Honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind is there's a there's a a, a wonderful dance sequence midway through the film where Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo's character are just dancing up a storm and they're dancing very sillily but <laughs> but it, it's also um the way they're dancing really represents their characters because emma stone's character is trying to like dance on her own and be free on the dance floor and mark ruffalo's character keeps like cutting in and trying to like force her to dance with him and it's a great way to, to represent their characters but it's also just very funny to watch them just dance up a storm and there's a similar dance sequence in the favorite so uh, keep doing dance scenes, Yorgos, and I'll keep laughing at them. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. What's your number seven, Chris? May, December, which is the latest from Todd Haynes. Uh, it, it went to Netflix, uh, but it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's better than your average Netflix movie. Um, it's, it's, it's based very loosely on a true story. Uh, sort of, um, Julianne Moore plays this woman who had, uh, I don't want to call it an affair cause that sounds <laughs> like it's consensual, but mm-hmm. she had a, a, uh, a sexual relationship with a child for lack of a better term. But, uh, like, uh, I think he was 11 years old when they had the, the, the quote unquote affair and they stayed together. And now, uh, the, the you know, the child she had the, the sexual relationship with is a grown man played by Charles Melton and, and they have, uh, uh, children together and their children are, are about to go to college and uh natalie portman plays an actress who is about to pl- star in a movie where she plays julianne moore's character and to do research on on this she's come to stay with them over a period of, of a few days and uh the you know this is really disturbing subject matter but the movie is uh in, it's intentionally funny. Like I've seen some people be like, you shouldn't laugh at this movie, but you absolutely should laugh at some scenes of this movie. There, there's clearly intentionally meant to be comedic, but it's really dark comedy. It's really dark subject matter. And, um, uh, the acting across the board is, is great here. Julianne Moore is great. Annalie Portman, great Charles Melton, who uh, I guess got his start on Riverdale, which I never actually watched, but he's really good here playing, you know, the, this, this, sort of guy trapped in like an arrested development where he's, he's a grown man now, but he still sort of acts like a kid because he's, you know, has 
sort of been stuck in this this childhood mindset through his mm-hmm. whole life. And uh yeah, this this was really good. One of my favorite Todd Haynes movies. Do you have like a, a favorite performance in terms of um I mean I I feel like Charles Melton is like the one that everybody's talking about, but like between uh the two female leads in the movie, like Natalie Portman or Julianne Moore, did did one of their um performances jump out to you more than the other because they're both think, doing like such different things in this movie yeah i think julianne moore is the i i think they're both great but i think julianne moore sort of wins <laughs> for lack of yeah. their term because she has the a really tricky role here because her character is is when you you know get right down to it just like detestable but she plays it in this sort of pathetic almost like you you sort of like you pity her in a way but yet at the same time you're like you can't really pity her because she did this terrible thing but she mm-hmm. she adopts this sort of like lisp that you don't really pick up on right away it's really like you slowly realize it's there and uh there's this like running theme in the film where like she's like a baker but people are like just accept her baked goods at a pity because she's she's <laughs> like nothing else to do and it's, it's it's a really tricky role and she really nails it down in this way that uh, it's like a, a sort of almost like a fearless sort of performance that I feel like a lot of actors would not want to take a role like this because it's such a a shitty character. <laughs> so yeah, she she does really really great work here. Amazing. Okay, so uh, that brings us to your number six. Number six is another movie I feel like a lot of people sort of slept on, uh, and this movie just came on VOD, so I hope people are discovering it now. And it is Eileen, which is a movie you and I saw together at Sundance back at, in January of 2023, mm-hmm. and it stayed with me the entire year. Uh, it's based on a book. I did not read the book. Um, I feel like the marketing of this is sort of like tricky because this is one of the movies where like the less you know about the movie, the the more the better it's going to be for you. Um, and it sort of was marketed as this, like almost like Carol where it's this, this relationship between a, an, uh, an older woman and a younger woman in the, in the sixties, I guess Carol is in the fifties, but you know, that same sort of era, but that's really not what the movie is. Um, uh, Thomas and McKinsey plays this, this young woman who works at a, pr- at uh, a prison and, uh, Anne Hathaway is is a psychiatrist or a psychologist, I can't remember which one, who comes to work at the prison as well. And Thomas and McKenzie becomes sort of enamored with her and uh, almost infatuated with her. And this is, again, I'm not going to say anything more because the less you know, the better. But this is a movie where midway through the movie or probably more than midway through the movie, it pulls the rug out from you and becomes like a completely different sort of movie and i just remember watching this at sundays and like the audience like sort of slowly like losing their minds as the movie progresses because <laughs> no like especially back then when there was like that was like the first time anyone had seen the movie no one knew unless you read the book no one knew what to expect and uh i feel like a lot of people at sundance were were like cold on this because it was not the movie they were expecting it to be but i i was blown away by this like for a while this was like in my top five and sort of became lower and lower as you know i saw more movies but no, it's at number six now but uh yeah I, I really love this movie yeah great stuff i'm really happy to see it on a list like this because i think it just hasn't really gotten the um i don't know the the critical like uh uh, praise and sort of like word of mouth and like a, um evangelistic sort of like uh you know, spreading the word kind of quality that I feel like it, it deserves. So I'm, I'm glad that you're uh, slotting it in, in on your list, Chris. Um, yeah. Okay, let's take a break real quick and then we'll come back and do your top five movies of 2023. 
All right, Chris, let's get into it. Your number five. Asteroid City, which is the latest uh, Wes Anderson movie. Um, a lot of people are, are are iffy on this movie, and I get it, because this is like a challenging, deliberately obtuse movie. I mean, there's a running theme throughout the movie where the characters like flat out state they don't understand what is happening in, in this in the story being told. And uh, like a lot of Wes Anderson's recent things, it's it's like a story within a story within a story. It's a it's a play that's being shown on television that's also being reenacted. And it's 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 very tricky stuff. And we see like the play. We also see the behind the scenes of the actors rehearsing the play and the, and we see the writer working on the story. And when, when you boil it down, this is really just a, a, a story about grief. And uh, Jason Schwartzman's character, his his wife recently died, and he's he's dealing with the fallout of that. And there's a there's a scene near the end of the movie that sort of unlocks the entire film, and it's between Jason Schwartzman's character and a character played by Margot Robbie, and she's only in one scene in the movie, and uh, it's them reciting a scene that got cut from the play, and it, it re, like I said, it unlocks their characters it unlocks really what this is all about and uh that sort of like floored me when that scene happened late in the movie and um i just love the style of this movie and it's got that great wes anderson style where it sort of looks like a a photograph uh (laughs) from the 60s and Mm -hmm. um, it's got that like sepia teal sort of tint to it and uh yeah like you know i totally get why people don't like this movie um but I, I, it really worked for me. Okay, so I'm going to spoil Asteroid City, or we're going to talk about it in detail here. So if you've not seen this movie and you still want to catch up with it, just fast forward a few minutes, because I want to talk about that moment that you mentioned, Chris, the, the scene with Margot Robbie, because I've seen a lot of people say similar things, like, oh, man, that that scene is like the scene of the movie. That That's like this incredible moment. And I remember watching the movie. I, I watched it at home. I, I didn't see it in theaters or anything. So I maybe that had something to do with it. Although I was paying attention. It's not like I was on my phone or anything, but uh, I came away from this movie going like, huh, I don't really think I got it. Like, I don't think I understood what he was trying to go for in this movie. So I'm just curious when you say that scene unlocked something for you or sort of like helped contextualize what was going on. Can you like, do you remember what, uh, what you learned from that scene or, or sort of like how it made you see the movie differently or like what your takeaway from you know, what Wes Anderson is trying to get at with this movie is. It really just unlocks those characters. So Mario Robbie's character is playing an actress who was supposed to play the wife of Jason Schwartzman's character in the play that's being filmed for TV. And they basically recite the lines they would have shared together. And um, I don't have like the script in front of me, so I don't, mm-hmm. know how, I don't have like the exact verbiage of what they're saying, but they're basically just talking about their relationship and, uh, it just unlocks the characters in a way that, you know, is sort of been deliberately hidden throughout the film. And um, the way it's shot where they're both standing on balconies, looking at each other and talking back and forth. And uh, yeah. So like, I don't have the exact wording, but I just Mm -hmm. remember that that scene in particular being like, Oh man, this is such a good moment. And I get the movie in a way that I wasn't, fully grasping up until this point. Yeah, I think I need to rewatch this one just because there are so many layers, like you're talking about, so many different um, pieces of artifice, which is something that Wes Anderson has been doing a lot and leaning more into, like even with his um, wonderful story of Henry Sugar stuff on on Netflix, like those shorts are very much like that as well, where there's like yeah. layer and layer and layer. Um, but like the, the idea of the two of them being on opposite balconies and like talking at each other across this chasm, it reminded me of 
the conversations that he has with Scarlett Johansson's character where they're sitting basically in, in opposite windows, like right. in next door neighbor houses kind of thing in, in asteroid city. Um, but I just, I wasn't, I think because there are so many layers, I was like, which of these is the layer that I'm supposed to really invest in emotionally, <laughs> you know? Um, so maybe uh, that was my um, hang up watching it the first time around. And like, maybe, like you said, maybe as the characters say in the movie, you're not really supposed to, get hung up on the things that I was getting hung up on, on my first viewing and maybe like uh, watching it again will help me sort of like just let the whole thing wash over me and I'll like take it as a whole instead of like, um, you know, Oh, this part is quote unquote real. And this part is, is fake level one. And this is fake level two or whatever. So um, anyway, yeah. Fascinating movie, a, a gorgeous movie. I mean, I, I yeah, I love the, the visuals of this as well. Um, and like what a cast, like maybe one of the best casts certainly of, of 2023, uh, 2023. So um, okay, so that was number five. What is your number four, Chris? Uh, this is a movie you and I talked about on the podcast for. It is The Zone of Interest, which is the latest from uh, Jonathan Glazer. And uh, I don't want to repeat myself too much because we talked about this, but this is um, it's set uh, in a house that's right outside of Auschwitz during World War II. And it's about the commandant of Auschwitz and his wife and their family, and they live in this house. And uh, this is just a horrifying, really upsetting movie it's about the the banality of evil, about these characters who who are living, you know, right next to a concentration camp and just sort of going about their lives. And it's it's shot in this way that we never see inside of Ashes. Never, we never see the horrors of of what's going on there, but we're always aware of what's going on there through like the the, the sound design, where you can hear like people just screaming and hear like gunshots going off and you see like the smoke pouring out. And um, uh, again, we talked about this, but there's this, this sequence near the end of the movie that is like one of the most like horrifying haunting things like I've ever seen put on film. And uh, it, it, it took me a minute to even figure out what was going on. But uh, yeah, this is one of those things where I kind of want to rewatch it because it's such a good movie, but it's such a, difficult movie to watch that i don't know if i will rewatch it but yeah. i might just like rewatch that sequence just to to get that full effect again yeah but, uh, oh, man i i so want to like get into that that ending of the movie and talk about you talk about it with you chris but um i, I think the movie itself doesn't actually come out or, or it's been it's in uh limited release right now i think it expands wider um this friday or something or maybe yeah. sometime soon january 7th i think um so i i guess it doesn't make sense for us to talk about the the ending in detail yet but i would love to come back and, and do that at some point i don't know when it's going to make sense maybe we'll just like carve out a little segment in a future episode like in in a few weeks or something uh and talk about that because i i really want to get into that moment because that's or maybe we could talk about it in detail on our like movie moments of the year podcast or something um if we do that but yeah uh, anyway yeah man zone of interest like what i, I think you, you said last time we were talking about it that it just like blew you away you know like it's it's that kind of movie um and i'm, I'm still kind of feel feel like i'm kind of reeling from the experience of watching it even though i've only seen it once but uh man what a movie great stuff yeah. um okay number three Number three is Past Lives, which is another movie I saw at Sundance last year, uh, directed by Celine Song. Um, and this is just a beautiful, uh, heartbreaking film. It's about um, these childhood friends who grew up in, in South Korea. And um, at one point, uh, one of them, um, it's, a, it's a boy and a girl, and the girl moved away with her family to Canada, and the, the boy stayed in, in Korea. And uh, over the years, they reconnect 
uh, via like Facebook and they keep sort of missing their chance to reconnect and she ends up getting married and he ends up planning a visit to, she ends up getting married and moving to New York and he plans a visit to New York to see her and they spend like a weekend together and it's so just lovely and sad. And uh, I was like just sobbing by the time the movie ended. Uh, <laughs> this is just a, just a, a beautiful film from Celine song. Yeah, this is gorgeous. I, I'm, I was so jealous that you got a chance to see this at Sundance because I didn't see it until like I was playing end of the year catch up. So I think I saw it like late November or something like that. And uh, I'm jealous that you've had this movie in your life for whatever. 10 months longer than I yeah. did, Chris, because it's like, it's that kind of movie that like, uh, it just sort of burrows its way into your heart. And I'm, I'm glad that it's there. And I want it to be there forever. It's just like such a, a good piece of work and like an incredible directorial debut movie, you know, like, I feel like we talk about um, directors who like fire out of the gate, you know, come out hot with come out swinging with their first movie or whatever. And like, this is one that it just seems so sure. She knows exactly what she's doing and it just feels like there's not a, a false step in the whole thing. It's, it's really great stuff. So, yeah. Um, okay. Number two, number two is uh, a little indie, uh, um, obscure film you might've heard of. It's called Oppenheimer. Um, Chris, <laughs> the latest from Christopher Nolan. Um, this is like just barely missed being number one. This is like, it feels like a, like a, a minor miracle of a movie because it's, it is like three hours of guys in rooms talking about science. And it's somehow like the most exciting movie you will ever see. It's just this almost relentless pulse pounding. It's like a thriller basically. And it just, uh, it just, it flies by man. Like I never once felt like this was a three hour movie. It just, it just rolls on by and er like it's just got this stacked cast and the editing is so good at conveying all this information in the most exciting cinematic way possible. And the, the uh, excuse me, the musical score is just propulsive and, and pushing everything forward. And Killian Murphy is so good here playing Oppenheimer with, as this guy who's just sort of like naive in his brilliance where he, you know, he obviously he, cre he helps create the atomic bomb and he foolishly thinks like, ah, oh, this, you know, what could go wrong? And then like, the, you know, that's like the first like two hours of the movie. And then the, the last, or maybe like it's been the first hour and a half. And then the last half of the movie is him being like, Oh my God, what the hell did I do? I made this terrible mistake and you can't undo it. You know, it's, it, you know, the, 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 um, the die has been cast. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, the cat's out of the bag. You can't put the lid back on the jar. Whatever, whatever <laughs> metaphor you want to use there. Uh, it, it's just so good. And like the, the, the final moments of this movie are, are just haunting to the extreme where uh, you watch it. You're just like, holy shit, man. What a movie. So um, <laughs> uh, this, this is like, uh, this is probably Christopher Nolan's best movie. I'm going to say that. It's just like the, it's just like, it's, the encapsulation of everything he's been building towards everything he's done so far has led up to this moment. And I'm, I'm dying to see how he's going to top this one. Well, that's a great pick for number two. Uh, the only thing that's shocking to me, Chris, is that Shazam Fury, the gods beat it out and made it your, <laughs> to be your number I know. one. I can't feel, you know, Lucy Liu riding on a dragon. That's, that's it. That's cinema, baby. Uh, okay. So what actually is your number one? My number one is Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which is another very long movie. This is three and a half hours. Uh, this is sort of an opposite 
not the opposite end of the spectrum, but you feel the length of this movie. But I, I didn't mind that because it, I felt like that was essential to the story being told of, of how the story unfolds over a period of years. Um, uh, this is, you know, based on a, like Oppenheimer. Uh, this is based on a true story of uh, just white people being awful <laughs> and uh, just committing murder in the name of, of greed. Um, it, it's, it's set in the 1920s in Oklahoma and the Osage uh, people, um, you know, they were they were forced onto this land. They were, you know, they were resettled onto this land. And as fate would have it, the land they were they ended up on was rich in oil, and they became incredibly wealthy, like the wealthiest, some of the wealthiest people in the world. And as you can imagine, that didn't sit right with with some white people who wanted the money for themselves. And uh, Leonardo DiCaprio plays this just dumb dummy just the stupidest man who ever lived who mar- <laughs> who marries an osage woman played by lily gladstone and um does he love her he says he does but he's sort of like manipulated into marrying her by his uncle who's played by robert de niro and the, the whole plan is for them you know for de niro's character to to sort of steal away the money that is should be uh lily gladstone's character's uh, rightful inheritance and mm-hmm. um uh, you know, everyone, I think like everyone at this point knows that Lily Gladstone, uh, gives like the best performance of the year in this movie. But even if you've heard that, like it, it still can't convey how good she is in this movie. She's just so good here. Um, I said this, I feel like we talked about this before, but I, I like, this is like one of the best performances in a Scorsese movie, like all of, all of all his movies. Mm-hmm. This is like one of the very best performances you'll ever see in one of his movies. It's just such a stunning uh, it's a very quiet performance. Like she has like a few big moments, but it's a very like measured internal performance. But everything she's doing here is just fascinating to watch. You're just like you're 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 captive. She has she has what they call star presence. Like you can't just help <laughs> but watch everything she does. You're just like glued to the screen. So yeah, uh, yeah. And this is another movie. I know a lot of people were, were sort of um put off by the length of it, and that's fine. I get that. It's 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 not an easy film to sit through, but this, you know, I, I, I it really uh, worked for me, and I, I, I love this movie. It's, it's, it's a disturbing movie. It's an upsetting movie, but uh, to me, this is the best movie of the year. Amazing. Okay, so man, what a great list, Chris. Uh, okay, that I think is going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can probably find reviews or, or at least some sort of writing of, of some kind about all the things that we mentioned uh, in, in this episode at SlashFilm.com. I will link to a few of them in the show notes. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter. There's a link for that in the show notes as well. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. I would also love it if you could take a couple of minutes to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a lot. Uh, tell your movie and TV-loving friends about the show. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. <laughs>